Welcome back to Between the Banners, your UNC basketball podcast on the Tar Heel Blog podcast, hosted by TarHeelBlog.com on the SB Nation podcast network. My name is Chad Floyd, and we'll start with a humble imposition. You found us here, don't lose us. Subscribe on the very podcast app through which you're hearing my voice. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I will read it on the air. We've got a backlog of nine such reviews from the ticket giveaway I did for the Ohio State game back in December. Uh, we'll shout you out at the end of this show. Tonight, I am joined by Al Hood and Akil Garuparan, two of our esteemed staff writers at TarHillBlog.com, because we have basketball wins to talk about. We took a brief hiatus to try to kill off any bad mojo as the Heels slumped to a 1-6 and six start in the ACC, but consecutive wins over Miami and NC State have given us new life. First, though, we're going to start on a more somber note with the uh, news of the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. I just wanted to open it up to the floor and... Um, Akil, I'll start with you. I mean, what what are your memories of Kobe? I know you're a little bit younger, so, you know, you didn't really ever see super athletic Kobe, but, you know, just kind of what was your impression of him as the basketball player and the man? I mean, for a lot of UNC fans, I think you have Jordan to point at as this kind of, like, determining basketball player, the guy who, like, just has a legendary work ethic, like takes over the game with it. And I am too young to have ever seen Jordan play and remember it. But Kobe was that for me, like it's obvious, like obviously famous that Kobe was heavily, heavily inspired by Jordan and his work ethic. And I think Kobe was the way that like Kobe and the Mamba mentality was the way in that Jordan's work ethic got translated to me and me learning about basketball and everything that became like my fandom of UNC and learning later about Michael Jordan, like Kobe was the vector for me. So like for that's like something that's super, super meaningful to me. That's like the way that there are people talking about how there's like an entire generation of people just about my age who might not have been raised in the best homes. And like, I'm not thinking about me, but people who like saw Kobe and found this like just a terminating work ethic, this drive to be the best at whatever you're doing. And Jordan was that for a lot of kids in the 90s, I think, and Kobe was that for kids like me in the 2000s. So, yeah, it's it's hitting me pretty hard. Yeah, and for me, and then we'll go to you, Al, um, you know, he was just kind of crushingly inevitable, you know, in a way, you know, you mentioned the work ethic, but very much in the sense of a Tom Brady or a Roger Federer kind of as contemporaries, you know, somebody who, I mean, I didn't particularly like him, the basketball player, because of the juxtaposition between him and MJ between uh, different generations. And, you know, I grew up getting to see MJ's second uh, three-peat. But, you know, it was just a situation where if Kobe was on the court, you knew he was going to be a killer. And it just felt like there was never a chance that he was going to allow his team to lose the game. So if you beat him, I mean, you absolutely earned the right to uh, boast a victory over him. Um, Al, you, you, you've got a little bit more age on both of us. So, you know, kind, kind of what was your context for Kobe, um, you know, with it being a Tar Heel pod, podcast, how it relates to Jordan, um, and just kind of your thoughts just on the finality of him, because I say he's inevitable, but he's gone now. Yeah, well, I mean, I I'll, you know, a lot of the thoughts are jumbled. Uh, obviously, it kind of starts with the fact that uh, he and I are the same age, 
uh, I guess I can say now were the same age. Um, so it was definitely stark when you're seeing all these remembrances and you see your birth year uh, up on the screen, especially if readers know what's been going on in my personal life the past year and a half that just that hits in a different level but um i think with kobe in in relation to the legacy and everything i mean I'm, i was you know i was in uh late elementary school early middle school when jordan's first repeat happened and then late high school heading to college when the second repeat happened and was a senior in high school when Kobe was drafted by the Hornets and traded to the Lakers. And you have that momentary fleeting thought of what if he had played for the Hornets, but he was never going to play for the Hornets. He, he never was. There, there's a reason why he ended up getting traded to LA. Uh, we don't have to go into that, but um, you know, he, he always just struck me as just a student of the game and his, his thirst for learning and to, that that lack of a better word, just that drive that not everybody, not every basketball player has. It's something that even LeBron James has been criticized for today. It's just he has to be the guy. He has to be the man. Um, and unlike Jordan, who took about eight years to finally get a team and a coach built around him, Kobe was basically blessed uh, a few years into his career with, Phil Jackson with Shaquille O'Neal to where he was able to pretty immediately get the benefit of of both of those things. So I think in some levels his his career is going to get is viewed a little bit differently than Jordan's because he found he was able to find success early, but it was because he had the he had the help. Um, but that drive and that that determination he had is what drove the last two titles and. Uh, it was definitely something living up here in Boston when he won uh, the second of the the other back-to-backs that he won. Um, but the other thing that I appreciate is just it's gone on it's it's gone on said. But uh, you know, one of the things that was circulating around was an interview he did, judging by Jimmy Kimmel's face, it was probably about three or four years ago at least, where he was asked where he would go to school. And he said that uh, Dean Smith had stopped recruiting him, but if he hadn't, he would have gone to Carolina. And someone later in the tweet storm had said that he had later on said to Duke. So, of course, he went back and forth. But what impressed me wasn't so much that, but the the answer he gave Kimmel, that if you listen to it, he, he talks about the players that were playing for Carolina and who he wanted to measure himself up against the best. That he was and he was he wanted to measure up himself up against Vince Carter and go against him every day. And then he said Rashid Wallace. And then he threw the name Phelps in his answer. Dude had the recall to think of Derek Phelps as the national championship winning point guard and in his mind think of one of the best guards, the one of the best guys that he could measure himself against in history. And that just gives you that momentary glimpse into the just wealth of knowledge that he had and what even at an early age he was he was seeking to get in. So um it, it's it's tough not to admire that. Even if I didn't root for him as a player, um, it, it's hard not to respect just the respect he had to the game of basketball. Yeah, and and that and you know I I think you said it best by kind of not going into the negatives of the uh, Hornet situation, which you know that another topic for another day, as are you know a couple of other factors, but just. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the way he was kind of the ultimate imposter, you know, he took on the Jordan mentality and started gritting his teeth. I think I think that was kind of the meme in like the 2010 finals, maybe, um, but adapted his game to where he was a mid-range killer, uh, studied Tim Duncan to learn his post moves and his bank shots and everything, and was just such an amazing student of the game. Um, I, th- I think we're just really going to miss having him as an ambassador of the game. Like you see Julius Irving and Bill Russell and so many of those other uh, legends of the sport have become. So, you know, without going, uh, without going on all night about this, because at the end of the day, we are here to talk about UNC basketball um, to, to Kobe, to Gianna, to his family, to the other people that were on board that helicopter uh, rest in peace. And we'll miss you. Um, Any closing thoughts from either of you guys? I mean, I think a lot of things of what what has been said can be said and will be said as um, more as more gets found out about the circumstances of the accident and they the family starts making uh, the plans. It's just it's you hate to use the word tragedy. You hate to overblow the word because sometimes that gets tossed around a little too easily. But uh, I mean, it, I feel like there's no other word to describe it. You just feel for you feel for his wife who. You know, not only lost a husband, but lost one of the daughters. And I just that that is an unimaginable pain that I, I just cannot fathom what she's going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's rough. Um, that that that's kind of all there is to it. Uh, Achilles, yeah. thoughts? Uh, yeah. First, I think just echoing Al to talk about both Vanessa and um, the living daughters, who I think like you know, losing both their father and their sister has got to be just an unimaginable kind of pain. Um, And second, I think I just want to shout out Kobe, like the work he was doing post-retirement as a kind of activist for basketball and an activist for women's basketball and doing like a lot of really, really respectable work to like get the game into a better place. Um, You know, like even the thing he was going to was a women's basketball event for his daughter. He was really invested in getting her into like women's sports and making women's sports more legitimate in the eyes of the public. And I think that's really important about the kind of legacy he's leaving. So I just wouldn't want to leave without saying something about that. Absolutely. Well, uh, I I think you said it very well there and uh, we'll leave it here. What we're going to do is just grab a quick break so we can have a nice little transition point. Uh, We're going to come back and talk about some Carolina victories. So we'll be right back. And we are back. Uh, guys, the Heels have won a couple of basketball games, uh, sitting now at three and six in the ACC. Um, let's start with the Miami game. Heels win 94-71. Uh, Akil, what was, what, what were kind of some of the just kind of overarching 30,000 foot view takeaways of, uh, that performance for you? Well, I think the primary thing about the Miami game is just that Miami was shorthanded and the ball went in the basket. Like Miami is maybe the one team that UNC will play all season that can legitimately say is more shorthanded than Carolina is. Even with all of the injury luck that we've seen UNC have, they were without Chris Light, who makes that team go, I think, even more than Cole Anthony made UNC go. And so against a team that was so short-staffed, that was so leaderless, it was pretty much 
like the equivalent of a, like a, a bunny non-conference game, just being able to see the ball go in the basket, not really having to worry about score after like five minutes of just playing basketball, treating it as a competitive practice almost. It really did just, I think, serve as a constant filter. We had five players hit threes. I don't know how many times that's happened this season. Brennan Robinson went off after playing a kind of role player role um, and also recovering from a spate of injuries. It was just a, a good way to recollect themselves after like demoralizing loss after demoralizing loss after demoralizing loss. Yeah, that was the thing for me is, you know, I, I looked at the score early and said, oh boy, we're up 30 to eight, you know, whatever it might be. And I said, man, this one's really going to hurt to lose. Um, Al, how long did it take for that uh, feeling of dread to subside? And, you know, kind of what were your thoughts as the game played out uh, for you? I think once the league kind of stayed in the 30 point range with about uh, about 10 minutes left in the second half, I finally just kind of let my kind of released my my breath and was like okay i think they've got this one um and and actually allowed myself to have the thoughts of we should be sitting guys so that they're ready to play on monday night which is something you can't we haven't even been able to fathom at all this year um i think that if a team decides that they want to play zone against carolina uh they should they are clearly a team that has not scouted this tape because Miami for their their players shortages the only option they had was to play zone and Carolina just absolutely picked it apart uh their the lineup that they had was just perfect for for um for killing it and what helped a lot was was as Akil said the shot the shots going in the baskets the mid-ranges and the um three-pointers that were open uh were there and Carolina hit them uh, but, you know, most importantly, it, it's a game where they finished 58% shooting. It is a game where they finished, um, you know, 43% from three, majority of those being Brandon Robinson. Uh, it was a game where they were able to win with uh, Garrison Brooks only being the third leading scorer. He had a great game, but he didn't have to be the guy. Um, you know, the positives of that game were that, Guys who, for for really the first time in a lot of ways, the team knew their roles. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. They didn't feel like there was going to be a huge amount of shuffling around. They didn't have um, they didn't have Jeremiah Francis, and I think at this point they know that if they ever if Francis is going to be on the court, it's going to be in limited minutes because. Um, you know, he hasn't played the last couple of games, and we're getting really close to having Cole back. So even when Cole comes back, Francis probably won't see that much in the way of time, which is good for him. He needs to be eased back into playing. Um, and it was just a good old-fashioned win, beat down to where the team could get the cheers from the home crowd for them to see the ball go in the basket and for them to just hold a lead after multiple games where a late they held a late lead. It disappeared, and it felt like that that is what they needed going into Monday night. I mean, and, and for the first time in a while, it looked like the team trusted each other, right? And that's reflected in the assist numbers. I don't think this team, like this team hasn't been nearly as good distributing the ball as 
he went to team usually is, but against Miami, they made 40 shots and assisted 32 of them, according to this scorecard I just pulled up. And that's yeah. and as that, good as they've done all season, right? That's Yeah, that, that, and Baycott that was, was a high in the Roy Williams era, wasn't it? Yeah, and Baycott was three assists. Baycott was three assists away from a triple-double. So it's not only how the trusting happened, but how this freshman big man understood the offense enough to where he could position himself to find the open person and get an assist. I mean, that he was the elite, he was the leading assist man um, with seven in that game. So it was just it, it was a great confidence builder in so many different ways. is currently active on this roster. Uh, and, and we'll get into that as we uh, litigate the state game here in a minute. Um, kind of the other biggest thing for me was the two grad transfers, uh, Keeling and Pierce combined eight of 14. They both scored uh, nine points apiece. They both hit a three. Um, almost looked like different guys just uh, from the limited minutes I did see where maybe you can rely on them as rotation pieces, if not starters. Um, I mean, well, definitely not starters at this point. But was that just an aberration or, you know, did, did it really – kind of feel like they had taken to their roles a little bit uh, just overnight. Well, I feel for like, me, I mean, it's, you... go ahead, Akil. Oh, okay. Um, for me, it's kind of like it's in their performance against Miami is also in performance or in conversation with their performance against NC state. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. Pierce had a stretch against Miami where I think he scored seven straight and killing had a stretch. Uh, killing had a four point stretch against state where they like just legit looked like they were capable of taking over an ACC game for a short amount of time. And that's not an impression I got from watching them throughout this season. So it looks maybe a little bit like they've gotten their sea legs under them. I don't think they're what we expected at this point, but I do think that just like this team overall was capable of better than what we were seeing. Like they're definitely capable of providing spurts where they can be like, the best player on the floor for a minute, two minutes of a game. And that's really, really valuable. Yeah. And that was going to be a very loose segue into the state game um, because it's time to dance on some graves now. Uh, Christian Keeling's two buckets in the second half to kind of stem the tide of state's momentum, I thought were the key to Carolina wrapping that game up last night. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we start with that, but, I'll I'll let you start with that if you want to. <laughs> I think I mean in the larger aspect, you know, we we're seeing what you typically do see this time of year, where Roy at this point knows at least ha- or at least has an idea of what his team can do and tries to get them into those roles. And injuries aside, even though we keep missing people. At the very least, at this point in the season, he knows what he's going to have. He knows what he's going to have for the rest of the year, and he's probably been able to game plan, practice, and fit guys into roles to where now they're not having to figure out, am I starting, am I not starting, how many minutes am I going to have? Everybody on the team essentially knows the role. Even Leakey probably had his best game as a point guard last night um, or Monday night just – because he's been able to play at that position for long enough to where things are starting to click for him. So, um, and that confidence 
starts to seep in at the end of the game where, as you mentioned, um, now that Keeling kind of has an idea of what's expected out of him, what his role is going to be, now that he's going to be coming in to just provide short bursts, um, you know, if he can just hit the, he gets those mid ranges that are available to him and he's not trying to do the whole take set up for three, take one step inside the arc and shoot it from there. You know, he starts making smarter shots. Then it's, it's amazing how that confidence will build over time. And that just, it, it permeates over the entire team. Um, I was definitely a lot more nervous Monday night with this one, just the way things kept, with the way things could be tightened up and with their history of surrendering late leads. But anytime state tried to push it, push it close, Carolina would have an answer. And that's something we haven't seen out of this team almost all season. Yeah. And I mean, really state was not executing super well. So I don't know if I want to, you know, all of a sudden write us back into the NCAA tournament picture or anything like that, but no, uh, no, no, that, that, that's, that's, Let's not put the cart before the horse yet, but we're just trying to we're just trying to enjoy the positives while we can. Yeah, um, Keeling's ability to attack off the dribble and create space—I mean, that was kind of what I anticipated his role being going into the season. I thought he and Cole Anthony were going to play really well off each other. Uh, might be a little bit late to sal- salvage at this point, but that was absolutely encouraging. Um, Akil, I'm I'm going to tee you up for the easy one. Let's talk about just how big of a badass Brandon Robinson is. I mean, it's one of several examples, one of two examples I saw Monday night of like Kobe's spirit just infecting the world of sports from, you know, wherever he is now. Brandon Robinson first, I think, collapsing three separate times on the court and then coming back in to play defense. Uh, get into his spots, make free throws at the end when no one else could, like just heroic, just determination at it, at the, at its peak. And then I like stayed up late and watched Roger Federer fight off seven match points, um, which you know reminded me again. But that's a different topic. But yeah, R- Brandon Robinson, I think. Didn't have the biggest scoreline, but hit seven of seven free throws and ended up scoring 11 points on five shots. That's a scoreline you'd take any day. And when you're suffering from an ankle injury, a knee injury, a rib injury, and general body shock from being in a car accident with a drunk driver, it's just remarkable. Yeah, I kind of talked myself into the theory that basically – you know what? Nothing hurt for him because everything hurt. And the third time he went down, I know uh, Tanya talked about this on the post game recap a little bit. But um, you, you hear the Lady State fans say, "You're not hurt. Get up!" And I, I think it kind of triggered all of us in our Slack channel and said, "Do you know what this man has been through over the past two weeks?" Um, it was an absolute warrior performance. It's honestly, as far as memories of state games go. Right up there with beating him by 50 the year they had Dennis Smith and uh, Marcus Pager's performance in Raleigh about six years ago. Just an absolutely just heroic performance. Um, Al, I don't want to cut you short on any Brandon Robinson love here. 
I mean, he was quoted after in the locker room later on citing Kobe. The, another picture circulated on Twitter showing him uh, actually getting a picture with Kobe while he was in uh, AAU ball. Um, he, he definitely felt it. And he, he said that each time he went down and he had pain, he was feeling that you know, if Kobe were there, he would just fight through it and go through it. I mean, and we've got the, we've got the example of him, of Kobe getting torn ACL and instead of limping off the court, wanted to make sure he shot the free throws before he took it, before he left. Um, it, it's no, nothing short of amazing. It was almost like by the end of it, the third time he went down, we're all Mickey and Rocky just yelling at him, stay down, stay down. <laughs> and he just, he just won't, he just wouldn't do it. And damn, if he just did not do what you want of a senior leader to just go out there to hit that big shot when you need it. And then when that potential for, the choking could have happened with, with Garrison, who was a warrior himself on Monday night, but for, just could not hit a free throw at the end to save his life. And I think it was because he was just gassed. Um, and just to come in and calmly hit those free throws and just take any hope that State may have had of coming back out of it, uh, it's remarkable. Um, it's His stat lines just are not going to do justice to – uh, the heart that he put in last, he put in Monday night to to the point to where uh, maybe one it may end up being one of the most memorable things of a of what may turn out to be a, a forgettable season. I mean, you could I, see it on his face, like every time the camera touched him, or like every time like he came in frame, it was just, like pain was just written all over his face. It's like. Going back to, I guess, the state fan uh, comments at the stadium about, like, you're not hurt, or if you're down, stay down. Like, you could see him fighting. It was very clearly real pain and, you know, just bolstered by all of the things that we know he's been through. But yeah, fully seconding everything else said. Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. Uh, if we're talking about Warriors, we'd be remiss not to talk about Garrison Brooks, who. Uh, from a statistical perspective, absolutely carried the team. And I mean, early on, State goes up seven nothing, and Garrison Brooks basically wills him back into the game early, and then kind of kept State at bay just with his aggression in the paint. But twenty five points, eleven rebounds, uh, six on the offensive glass. Uh, there, there was one possession where I think uh, Playtech had a breakout, uh, missed the layup as he is wont to do when he runs the break. Uh, Baycott got a tip and then Brooks just played volleyball with the rim and uh, ended up getting the bucket. But I mean, his performance was, you know, we, we, we talk about, we, we talk a lot about how these five-star big men go elsewhere when you have Roy Williams out here developing unheralded big guys into NBA players. And I'm not saying Garrison Brooks is an NBA player, but you can absolutely see just the amount of work he has put into his credit and the work that the player development staff has done. I mean, just what, what are performance from Brooks and, you know, really, and, and we'll segue into kind of what we're looking at uh, going forward. But if you have that kind of post presence along with Baycott, who didn't really have his best night after having kind of a breakout of his own against Miami, you know, that this is a team that could possibly end up being slightly dangerous. Um, Akil, what what was your what was your Brooks takeaway last night besides awesomeness? I mean, yeah, that first half was ridiculous. Seventeen points, uh, 
like you said, he basically kept UNC in it the like whole first half, and then they got more of a group contribution in the second. But he's just been for the whole season, especially conference season, since Cole Anthony went down, he's just stepped up, been a consistent scoring presence, found a way to play found a way to play bully ball basically. He's not a finesse player and at times that used to limit him and it's not right now. He's just finding a way to back down guys who are bigger or smaller than him, box out and um play like just have, yeah, like you said, play volleyball with the rim. He showed off some finesse against State, which was super interesting. He had a couple of hook shots that looked smoother than anything he's done in his Tar Heel uniform. Uh, he didn't have the great, greatest free throw game. Like you said, he's been pretty hot and cold on that. But that was my biggest takeaway, that it was a kind of development game for him, or at least like a game where he got to show off development in the sense of doing stuff that wasn't the kind of like aggressive just at um dominate the rim kind of big man that he had been he you know showed off some variety to his game and if he's got that and can really start playing like becoming a primary offensive option with Cole Anthony back just being able to show off some different moves and not and take advantage of being put into spots as opposed to just, you know, going up and seeing what happens. That's going to be really, really key. Yeah. And I think a big key to that is just um, the development of Baycott and Brooks getting to play the four, as opposed to where he's been stuck at the five, his whole career. He has a little bit more um, space to operate as kind of a face up for work that mid range game. And I mean, I, I was just impressed with his ability to handle the ball, backing people down and really, slow the game down, you know, from the elbow in and then use what's becoming a nice, vast array of post moves. Um, yeah. And then just the big to big passing, uh, Baycott and Brooks have just an awesome chemistry that kind of makes you hope that uh, Baycott sticks around and we can see that again next year. Um, but, you know, obviously that will create a nice little log jam for the big men. That's not what we're talking about today. Um, Al, last last thoughts on NC State. Um, obviously, always a whole lot of fun, uh, especially if you uh, get into Twitter when you get to bury NC State. So, you know what? What was the most rewarding aspect of beating a state team that had every right to expect to win this game, and we got to sweep the rug from them yet again because it's NC State and NC State shit happens. I think my I think the moment that kind of crystallized the game was that that uh, moment that you actually referenced earlier, where Playtech went on the drive, got his layup blocked, and you had that moment where the crowd was ready to explode. You heard that moment of just explosion of noise where Playtech got blocked, and it went right into Brooks's hand, and he went in with one of the most mean, aggressive dunks that I think any Carolina player has put down this season to completely suck the noise out of that arena. Uh, And that play was so big, it killed the crowd for for the PNC for a long time. 
Um, and that is just so satisfying. It really is because, you know, we talk about the fact that we, we talk about state fan all of this time and Duke is a rival. Duke is a, Duke is a big rival. We revel when they lose. We root hard against them. We do not like seeing their successes. We like comparing ourselves against them. But at the end of the day, if we get swept by Duke, but we go further in the NCAA tournament or we end up winning a title, our season isn't defined by the fact that we got swept by Duke. My night is not going to be completely ruined if Duke wins a game. Like, I don't watch Duke play. Like, I'm, they're supposed to play tonight. I'm not going to watch them play. I'm not that consumed by them. Uh, I don't want to see the campus in Durham burn to the ground. Um, State fan just hates Carolina. They they take their failures as a as a program, and rather than look inward and try to find ways to where they can at least try to get to this level, they look for other people to blame. They blame Chapel Hill. They blame Carolina for it, and that unadulterated hate that comes in whenever they play it just makes any game, any win against them satisfying. And then as I like to tweak at them last night that clearly they don't clearly the basketball team doesn't think it's that big of a rivalry because if they can't beat this team and the with the worst Carolina team that's been on the court in about 20 years then they clearly have issues getting up for the getting up for the program uh, or getting up for the game especially since there were empty seats at PNC last night. Like this was their chance. This was their chance to humiliate Carolina. This was Carolina has long, has gotten out the 20 point deficits against inferior teams. State by all rights can say that they're a better team than the ones that Carolina had, had suffered bad losses against and they couldn't do it. Um, and just to see that, see them taken down a peg uh, on that end and just kind of have to, continue to just sit and suffer uh like that it's just it's satisfying it's satisfying i would absolutely agree with that um i i know we were kind of blowing up on slack last night just with you know some good old-fashioned nt state hatred um a friend of mine not gonna mention him by name who basically you know told us that uh Carolina fans began life on third base, and I just wanted to say, well, no. The only difference between Carolina fans and state fans is that uh, we had higher SAT scores. But um, don't don't want to go into that too much. Uh, Akil, how satisfying was it to beat State in Raleigh uh, in another sport for the second time in about two months? Oh, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, seconding just about everything Al said about dealing dealing with state fan and you know the kind of unique position that they hold it's just state fan if they get a kind of whiff of being able to like tout some sort of superiority over unc whether that's like a moral superiority or a basketball superiority or a football superiority or whatever like they will take it upon it themselves to ruin our days and it's just gotten to the point for me now where seeing them lose the opportunity to do that in just about anything is its own kind of satisfaction just like 
the relief of knowing that I'm not going to have to deal with the ramblings of a state fan telling me how the program I support is bad actually is turning into just a kind of pleasure in and of itself. And also, you know, states, of, even this year where they're supposed to have a decent team, they're a bubble tournament team right now. And that means even in this, like, a decent year for them, this game was going to be the highlight of their schedule. Like, this was their Super Bowl, even in this year where UNC is not great and State has a better shot than they've had at postseason noise. And for them, and to see them lose that like this by double digits in a game where, you know, every time they tried to come back, this depleted Carolina team had an answer. Just beautiful. It uh, definitely merits a chef's kiss. Um, let's uh, take just a quick transition here. Uh, and just for a couple minutes, you know, like I said, UNC sitting at three and six. Uh, unfortunately, they have kind of gone through the soft part of their schedule without Cole Anthony here and did not really capitalize on it. Al, I think you were with me last time when we said, yeah, if we go five and two over this stretch, we're sitting pretty. Um, we went two and five or two and four with uh, the Boston College game still pending. But, you know, just uh, real simply, and now I will start with you here, you know, with Baycott emerging as a threat, with uh, Brooks and Robinson kind of establishing themselves as leaders, does Cole Anthony's return make this even remotely possibly a tournament team? Uh, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't hold my breath on it. I would not say I would not even consider it a goal. I think the more realistic goal for this team is to continue to improve, uh, to not finish in the bottom four, uh, the bottom four teams excluding Georgia Tech, because uh, this year with Georgia Tech getting their postseason ban, uh, they will not be in the NCAA tournament, so there will only be four teams playing on the ACC tournament Tuesday. Uh, get yourself to the first bye to where you're playing on Wednesday. You're going to be playing with a bunch of teams that you're no worse than uh, the middle once you get past the top three teams in the conference is a big quagmire uh, and there's a really decent chance that you can make a run um, so if you can finish uh, if you can finish uh, ahead of the bottom four show that you are a different team and a better team with Cole Anthony out on the floor make an ACC tournament run you might have a shot at getting into the tournament, especially with what the committee has essentially set as precedent last year with what they did with Duke and Zion, uh, both when he was out and then when he was back. Um, you know, it, it's one of those far-flung goals that fans shouldn't give up on, but I think the bigger thing that fans should really be focusing on is continuing to improve, continuing to see this, and aim to be outside of the bottom four of the conference uh, and then just hope for a good, deep ACC tournament run. Uh, Akil, same question. You know, kind of what, what do you see the trajectory of this team being? So I think in the past we, or at least I have, and I think uh, one of our writers, maybe Christian has as well, compared this team to the 2014 team that finished uh, something like 24 and 10. Uh, or something along those lines in like in the record I 
And the difference between this team and that team at the time was that that team had a star point guard who became a star and sparked a winning streak that propelled them from irrelevance and quagmire into tournament consideration. And, you know, this team is in a particular, in basically that place. They're about a month behind schedule. But if Cole Anthony really is at 90 plus percent and ready to be cleared by the medics, and if he can come back to like superstar form, then he might be able to spark a run of some kind. And if that run can take them to, you know, a big win or two, a deep ACC tournament run, as weak as the field is this year of college basketball, that could be enough. And this could be a tournament team. And then once you're there, it's just as much about coaching and experience as it is anything else. And yeah, I think uh, there, there's a lot of work to do, but the pieces are in place. You just, I think this team just needs to play them right. And, you know, we'll see over the next month, essentially, if they've got the guts to do it. Yeah, um, you know, things don't really get any easier. Uh, the Heels get Boston College on Saturday and then go to Florida State, who has won 10 in a row, is undefeated at home, then come back and host Duke. Um, get a little bit of a respite going to Wake and then uh, playing host to UVA, who has kind of reeled since uh, the first meeting there. And then, you know, basically it pretty much opens up to where Carolina has kind of toss-up games outside of the game at Louisville and then at Duke to close where you can see maybe a nine or 10 uh, regular season win team if you squint real hard. And at that point, um, I think Al's right that maybe the committee takes into account the injury issues that the Heels have had, because at the end of the day, they just won two games with their fourth string point guard. Um, Gentlemen, that is all I've got here, but, Let's hope for the best against Boston College on Saturday night. Uh, Hopefully we can uh, turn this two-game winning streak into a three-game winning streak. And as for you listeners, uh, stick around. We're going to go ahead and do the five-star reviews. But thank you for listening. And now some five-star reviews. Uh, We appreciate you guys for submitting these. Um, I think it is a little bit self-serving that Nine of these came uh, when I offered to give away four Ohio State tickets uh, to people who reviewed them. So congratulations to our winners, and this is long overdue, so I apologize. Um, These are all basically from, uh, yeah, December 2nd and 3rd. So, you know what, if I put a carrot on the stick, you guys do what I ask you to do. So, um, you know what, maybe we'll look for more carrots on the stick in the future. But uh, again, we do appreciate your support, and for listening to our podcast. So let's get it rolling. Durham Hill, five stars. Great. Always great info from Tar Hill blog. Thank you, Durham Hill. Uh, Sid Hutch 12, a great podcast for Tar Hill lovers. My favorite podcast to listen to with fantastic insight. I could not agree more. Uh, Cheddar Rob, love this pod. One of the ones I look forward to the most. I don't blame you. We should record more often. Uh, Ryan Taub says, amazing podcast, fantastic podcast. Love listening to you guys. Go Heels. Go Heels indeed, Rob. Ryan. Uh, Tar Heel Takeover just says, review. Nobody better. Go Heels. I would agree. There are a lot of places you can get UNC-related podcast information. Y'all should stick with us. Uh, Dancer J1116 says, the best. Really enjoy this podcast. Thumbs up emoji. Go Heels Ram emoji. Nick Moreno 95 says, great podcast. Chad Boyd, my last name is Floyd, 
is an insight into the side of analytics and pointers for any Carolina fan. Thank you, Nick Moreno. I am not going to hold it against you that you got my name wrong because that warms my heart. The Super Bay, B-E-I, Bay, 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 Uh, Go Heels. I finally found a podcast that's near to my heart and the best part, I don't have to read. Go Heels. Super Bay, we will get you reading if you need to, but um, otherwise, I would rather give this to you in an audio format so you don't have to. Uh, O Short says, love and respect this pod. Shout out. I think this is a former ATO here. Uh, One-stop shop for everything UNC related. So guys, again, it really does help our podcast. Um, It kind of gives us a little extra motivation to post a little bit more consistently. It uh, helps us. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. It helps us just through the analytics, uh, promotes us uh, within podcast apps and everything. And it is just uh, super helpful if you do listen to this podcast, if you do enjoy this podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave us a review, and we will be back with more soon. Thanks for stopping by and go Heels.